to the Strange Brew Podcast. <laughs> My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Twink, Brand New Morning, from um, a single he released uh, a few months back on uh, Gardenor, one of my uh, favourite labels. Welcome, Twink. Thank you. It's good to be here. Today we're featuring a range of tracks from what is quite uh, an incredible time that you've had in the music industry over the past 50 years or so. You know, pivotal on in terms of the sort of psychedelic counterculture, and, and hopefully the tracks that we'll be playing today will give um, listeners a, a real flavour of uh, your musical journey. Great, right. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing what questions you have and um, hearing the music too. Let's talk about that opening track because um, that's one of your uh, most uh, recent singles, "Brand New Morning." That was where you uh, teamed up with guys from the uh, Gardner label, members of groups like Paper Nut, Cambridge, yeah, and yeah, Picture that's Box. Right. How did you link up with them? Well, let me think. Oh yeah, I, I was doing. A, I was offered a gig in. I think it was last year or the year before to do a show with Sterling Roswell in the West End of London at the Muse Club. Mm. And it just so happens that those guys were in the band that he um, the, he organized um, for the show. You know, from that point on, we just kind of got on and, uh, you know, we did a 
couple of other gigs together. And then Sterling left. And then we went on and did a couple of more shows. And, and then we, we did the, uh, the single. There's various shades of um, what you could call a psych. There's kind of the sort of harder edge and then this kind of more the sort of softer mm. side of it. And and this particular song is a bit more of the the English sound. Is is that kind of what you were aiming for on this one? Actually, Robert Halcrow phoned me up one day and he says, look, we're playing, we, actually, we re, we've recorded an album with Sterling. Mm. We went in the studio one day and, re, and we actually recorded an album, but that, nothing has happened with that as yet. But anyway, uh, Robert phoned me up, mm. said, um, I, I'm going to come up and we're going we're gonna to make a record. So he arrived, he set up a microphone, he had a little kind of like a, a, an amplifier box with him, and he had the basic track and the lyrics. So we recorded Brand New Morning, but a very kind of rough version, if you like. He then took it away and shared it with the rest of the guys in the band who put their little bits and pieces on and built it up to what the final sound is, which is great. I love it. It's got that 1966 type type feel to it. Yeah, I, w- I wasn't aiming for that specifically, but maybe Robert was, you know. Uh, and at the same time, I, I just played uh, an acoustic guitar for the B-side. Um, just played the acoustic guitar and and some lyrics that I'd just put together, and we recorded that. And then he took that away, and everyone else put their little bits and pieces on it, and that sounded pretty good as well, I think. I've got the uh, seven inch in front of me, and uh, so that B side that you're referring to is "Dreams Turn Into Rainbows." Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Now we're going to go way back uh, to, towards the uh, more more of your early years, and um, we've actually got go straight into the pretty things. Not everybody knows that you were featured on a few tracks from their Get the Picture yeah, album. Yeah. Were you still a member of the Fairies at that time, or would you like? At that time, I was. Yeah. What What happened was, um, John Gandy, who was the bla- bass player of the Fairies, was booked um, as a session musician, session musician for the for the Pretty Things, to cover for John Stacks, who'd gone on his honeymoon. Well, you know, I was a big fan and, and a friend of, of the Pretty Things. Mm. I said, well, I want to come along as well. So I went along to the studio and, uh, oh, great, Twink, fantastic. Uh, Viv has got, has, has got locked up. He's in jail and uh, we don't have a drummer for the session. So actually, Bobby Graham was there. Bobby Graham was, <laughs> uh, was also a drummer, but he was producing. So he really didn't want to do the drums, you know. Yeah. So I recorded two tracks with, uh, with the Pretty Things. You Don't Believe Me, which was mm. written by Jimmy Page. Uh, and Jimmy Page plays guitar on that track as well. The other track is We'll Play House, which is kind of a little jam that we did in the studio. Am I right that there was sort of a few connections between your band at the time, The Fairies, and The Pretty Things through your... Was it your road manager, Johnny D? Oh, Johnny D, yeah, yeah. No, no, I think not, not a lot of people know this. Yeah, Johnny D was our road manager at the t- uh, at the time. And he, he brought a song to us called uh, Don't Bring Me Down. He offered it to us and said, oh, right. and we said, well, you know, we, we actually don't like the lyrics, you know. And um, he took it to the pretty things. They picked it up and, of course, they had a big hit with it. So, so Johnny D, you know, dropped it. We were actually touring Scotland at the time. And when he when he heard that uh, Don't Bring Me Down mm-hmm. was in, in the charts, he flew home. He left us there. Uh, you know, in, in Scotland without a road manager and flew down to, to London, you know. The fairies, I don't, I don't think you, you hit, hit the, the charts to any extent. Was it just things... Oh, that... No, we, did, we didn't hit the charts at all, actually. Mm. We, could, we could have done. 
Uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure we would have done because um, we had a great vocalist, a guy called Dane Stevens. And it's, it's Stevens with a V, by the way. Everyone spells it the wrong way, with a PH. Mm. But anyway, no, he was absolutely amazing. Now, we, we lost him because he was involved in a very serious car accident uh, one day, and there were fatalities involved, and he didn't have a license or insurance while he was driving, so um, he got put away for a year. You know? ah. But, but I, I feel sure that we would have, we would have broken through. His, we, were, we were being produced by Mickey Most at the time, we were, we, yeah, we'd been we'd been in the studio with Mickey Most and recorded. Um, we recorded um 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 um. You know the Major Lance track, mm. uh, which was later recorded by Wayne Fontana and became a hit. And we also recorded a, a, a song that Dane Stevens wrote, which was called "You Win." Now, what has happened? Whatever's happened to those recordings, I don't know. But they um, they they certainly haven't surfaced. We were on our way, and then of course. Bang, you know, car crash, and we struggled on for, I guess, about, I suppose, about eighteen months. You know, we, we, you know, we were really flogging a dead horse, really. We we got another singer into the band who was really too much like Phil May to, um, for our own good. We just became like a carbon copy version of the pretty things, you know. Which but we and we weren't that before. Do um, you know what I mean? With the other vocalists, you know, we had, we had a great. Uh, vocal repertoire, if you like, and our sets were—it was very diverse uh, in, in in the sense that we we played blue beat, we played soul, we played blues, we played some rock, and we played a little bit of jazz. You know, it was very moddy, mod and mod band, if you like. Even though we had long hair, you know, we had, we, we were a great band.
So after the fairies, how did you get involved with um, Keith West, Steve Howe, and uh, Junior Wood? Was oh, right. yeah, well, we we were we were pals. We were always hanging hanging out together in uh, around Denmark Street, and uh, you know, going to clubs and going to pubs, and you know, hanging out. And we got on really well with the uh, with the guys. And then um, their drummer left, Ken Lawrence, um, left them. They tried um, some other drummers out. Um, there was a guy that used to be with uh, David Bowie, a drummer. You know, he's a good drummer. They didn't get on with him because um, they didn't like the fact that he used to bring sandwiches. Uh, you know, when they had a gig, he used to bring his like lunchbox, and he didn't share his sandwiches. You know, so <laughs> so so they, you know, that was bye bye. Um, whatever his name was, Phil, I think. And then uh, Mitch Mitchell um, sat in with them a, a couple of gigs as well. And, of course, Mitch was very busy. And then one evening, um, I was playing with the fairies. And we, at that time, we, we'd actually got Dane Stevens to come back into the band. But unfortunately, uh, the momentum had been lost, you know. And we were, we were really struggling. And Keith and Steve came down to the Café des Artistes just mm. in Fulham. And they were hanging out, you know. And I didn't really know why they were there. But in the, at the end of the evening, Steve came up to me and said... Um, would like you to join the in crowd. So I said straight away, I said yes, and uh, kind of handed my notice in to the, the fairies straight away. Mm. It was hard in one sense, but easy in another sense. One has to progress. And we've been through some really hard times together, so that was the difficult part, you know, the, leaving, uh, you know, my mates without a drummer, you know. But um, sometimes it just had to be done. So as the in crowd and then into... Uh, morphing into you know with the name tomorrow how did you then link up with mark Wurtz? um we were looking for a record deal and brian morrison had inroads into emi because of his Pink floyd connection we did a, like an audition i think for uh, yeah, we did we did an audition with norman smith who actually wasn't that impressed with us a little bit later hmm. brian morrison brought uh, mark Wurtz down to yeah, Blazers Club, we were playing Blazers uh, in South Kensington to see us, and Mark liked us, and um, that's how we, how we got hooked up with Mark, you know, he liked us, and then we were, the next thing we knew, we were in the studio, hmm. Abbey Road. And what time to be at Abbey Road? Yeah, it was great, yeah, well, we actually did the audition for Norman Smith at Abbey Road as well, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was early, very early, 67. And then we started recording, I think, around about April, May, 67, started recording uh, My White Bicycle. Was it clear, you know, when you first started playing that track that it'd be such a, a powerful song? Um, I, I think we all liked the song, but we didn't realise, you know, what the end product would be like because um, ultimately Mark took it away and he did quite a bit of... Um, you know, the, like the, the introduction. The sound effects. Yeah, a lot of sound effects. I mean, a, lo- a lot of the sound effects we'd, we'd actually put on. We uh, we did the backward hi-hats, you know, and all the tinkling bells and whistles and stuff like that. But Mark took it away, and then he reversed a lot of the um, the guitar parts and, and did all the sort of backwards guitar stuff. Then we heard it and thought, wow, this is great. So late. 
disgrace Shines no light upon our face Through the darkness we still see My white bicycle and me My white bicycle a few things going on in that period it seemed to take an age for the Tomorrow album to be released but at the same time Keith and Mark had that massive success with um, Teenage Opera yeah 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 well that that was really why the, I mean the, the Tomorrow album got delayed because of Teenage Opera I mean, we, we, Tomorrow really got put on the back burner because of the Teenage Opera mm. we were actually doing very well until the Teenage Opera came along you know and that kind of just side sidetracked the groove. Yeah, well, we got we just got put, yeah yeah we just got put, we just got pushed to the back, you know, and um, and and all the focus, you know, all the sort of the business interest in EDMI and in the music publishing and in the agency publishing the managers, they're all talking to Keith, you know, whispering in his ear, you know, mm. hey, you got to go solo, you know, you're going to make millions out of this teenage opera thing, you know what I mean? It was like, mm. you know. Typical uh, music business shenanigans. So, yeah, so we just got put on the back burner, basically, and really became uh, very disheartening. But but at the same time, you, yourself and Junior uh, released what what now is, you know, one of the key singles from the psychedelic era. And again, I think Mark was involved in the production. 10,000 words in a cardboard box Absolutely, yeah. No, no, no. That's an in- interesting, very interesting um, subject that you've raised there because the Aquarian Age was a very serious project that I had with John. You know, we were we were writing new material together. We were rehearsed. We were thinking of putting a band together. We were working on a stage play, uh, which did incorporate some of the music from the Teenage Opera. Mm. You know, and we had some great ideas and great plans for it. And, and I'm sure... You know, with working with Mark, we would have done, you know, follow up singles and maybe one of them would have been a success. Shadows dancing round my head Rejoicing to the waking of the dead Dancing to the beat 
SF Sorrow and, and the Pretty Things, you, you were at Abbey Road, but this time with Norman Smith? With Norman Smith, yeah. It was great. Yeah, Norman was great. With working with the Pretty Things and, uh, and working with Norman was, was absolutely fantastic. He's very open to uh, ideas and suggestions. Yeah, it was, it was great. 
and you're down as co-writer on um you know a number of those tracks from you know what is a, a landmark album one of those uh tracks being she said good morning but did you have much of a a role in the the, the writing department well uh, apart from uh, apart from you know the, the, the drum track which i laid down mm. and then it was my idea to add the dialogue at the end of uh, you know the, the dialogue when it goes into um What's the next track up? Do you mean Private Sorrow? It goes into Private Sorrow, yeah, that's right. So she says good morning, and you know, there's that dialogue between the, uh, a girl and, mm. and, and me, actually. Yeah. You know, oh, a lovely day, isn't it? And all this stuff. So they, they were, that was my contribution lyrically to the song. But all of the, I mean, I wasn't um, given any top lines for the drums. So the drum, the drum parts were, were mine. They came, uh, they were my ideas. Oh, really? Go, go, go. 
towards the, the, the end of, of your tenure in the, the Pretty Things, I understand you're recording your, your sort of debut solo album, Think Pink. What was it that kind of led you to be branch out kind of on your own? Well, that was, it was quite extraordinary, really, because um, one day Mick Farron, who I was very, very friendly with at that time, mm. and, yeah, and the Deviants, I was interested in that whole community thing that they were involved in. And I like Mick. I liked like his uh, his sense of humour and his attitude. It was great. Um, said to me one day, he said, "Yeah, you know what? I'd like to produce an album for you. I'm, I'm going to suggest it to Seymour Stein." Subsequently, the next day, he said, I was spoken to Seymour. Come and meet him. So then I went. I went and met Seymour Stein, and we worked out a deal. And then a couple of days later, I started recording the album. Gosh. So it was, it was simple as that. You know, it was really through Mick. Mick Farron, then I got the, uh, the, the the deal. There's a lot of artists that you worked with that, you know, so many great names, a lot of the pretty things guys, John Jr. Wood was there. Oh yeah, John John plays on the two tracks that we wrote together, Tiptoe and the Highest Hill was an Aquarian Age track. That was one of the songs that we demoed uh, at EMI. So there's that and 10,000 words in a cardboard box that John Wood plays on, on Think Pink. Steve Peregrine Took uh, at the time of, was on there as a Tyrannosaurus Rex, of Steve course. Steve Peregrine Took, yeah. And Steve helped me do the, the remix because I didn't like the, the original mix that um, I heard when we, uh, when we went to play. We played it to Decca. Decca were first interested in the album and, and I was really disappointed when I heard the uh, first mix. So I suggested to Seymour Stein that I go back in to the studio and remix it. And I did that. We did a remix with Steve Took. Steve Took came along and helped me with the, uh, with the mix. He had some great ideas. Looking back at that album, it's uh, you know revered now as a, as a classic of, it, of its time. Yeah, it is. Isn't it? It's extraordinary, really. In, in, the, in the very early days mm. of um, you know being out there, I really didn't give it much thought. I didn't really... I wasn't too keen on on, uh, on on this finished product, but you know, over the years I've grown to love it, and it's kind of you know taken on a life of its own now. You know, in fact, it was uh, just uh, the last uh, record store day. It was a, a double mm. um, album version, the mono and stereo versions, have been released on pink vinyl uh, on some Sunbeam records. So yeah, it just keeps rolling on, you know. And I, and I've got Think Pink Four coming out uh, in June. An album that I recorded last year with with some friends um, in Nanaimo, which is on Vancouver Island, and that's pretty uh, pretty awesome, actually. <laughs> I can't wait for that to be released. Thank you. 
And it seems like, um, you know, natural progression into the, the, the pink fairies, although there was a kind of a, was a few line-up changes over the, the next year or so, was there? Uh, well, with the pink fairies, no, there were, there were no line-up changes. Okay. The, the original, some people refer to myself, Mick Farron, and Steve Took as the original pink fairies line-up because we did one gig together as the pink fairies. But it was a complete disaster because we had, we were just drunk and we had no rehearsals and mm. we didn't know what we were doing and we arrived at the gig and it was just crazy, crazy, crazy. And, and I, I realized that, <laughs> that that particular format wasn't going to happen and I, I wanted to put a real band together. So I got together with um, Jamie Mandelkow, who was the Deviant ex-manager. We got to, uh, you know, I, I told him what my idea was, was to bring the, the Deviants who were still in, in, in America, back to the UK, and form a band with me, uh, with me as the lead vocalist. So we phoned, we phoned the guys up in, uh, I'm not sure if they were still in Canada or whether they were in San Francisco, but anyway, we got, got them on the phone and you know told them my ideas, and they said, yeah, they'd be happy to do that. And we would call the, name, we would call the band The Pink Fairies. So once I got the okay from, from the guys in the band, I went along to uh, Mick and Steve, who were just finishing off Mick's album, uh, The Carnivorous Circus, mm. and told them that I, would bring, I was bringing the guys back from Canada or, or, or America, um, and we were calling the band The Pink Fairies. And, and that, I, think, I, you know, I don't think they were too happy with that, but um, what are you going to do? <laughs> we're playing uh, Do It, a, a track I have uh, featured before. What a song that's... But way way ahead of its time in terms of its um, you know it's it's basically punk rock before punk rock. Yeah, well, I pl- I played that. And, you know, there's a you know, jo- have you heard of Jordan who was? Um, oh yeah, yeah, very much a, around yeah, the yeah. Sex well, like, she, she, yeah, she was around my house in like 1977, around my flat, and I played her the Do It and mm. uh, the Snake, and she said, "Wow," she said, "That sounds like the <laughs> Sex Pistols." <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's true. It's very, very pistol-like. You know, but uh, do, you, do you have you you know the story about how the the song came about? No, I don't actually. Uh, Jamie uh, and myself wrote a letter to uh, John Lennon and uh, Yoko Ono, and we asked them to write a song for the Pink Fairies because we thought, yeah, they, of course they're gonna they're gonna write a song for us because we you know we're doing it with with you know we're in the same page you know. Mm. Anyway, we got a, a form letter back about a week later or two weeks later from bad production saying very sorry but John and Yoko are too busy you know mm. uh, and, I, and I was on the way to the studio to uh, to record um, for Polydor Records the single you know Snake and Do It Yeah. and uh, on the way there I wrote Do It because I was really angry you know really angry mm. at, uh, at getting this form letter from John and Yoko it's so heavy yeah yeah I, know. It, it, I think Paul, Paul did some amazing guitar work on the single on the Snake for example, I mean that's that's yeah. great. Uh, and do it, you know. And do it is the one track that keeps coming up all the time. It comes up, comes mm. up on compilation albums. It kind of came up came up in uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels TV show. It came up in the vinyl. You know the, the thing that Martin Scorsese did. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, the TV. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, it was actually in one of the uh, one of the episodes where um, yeah. they had a band, a lookalike band on the beach 
And you know, and they actually got it pretty accurate, which I which I was absolutely amazed. <laughs> the singer looked like me, the lead guitarist looked like Paul, the bass player looked like Sandy, and the drummer looked like Russell. <laughs> and they really got it. They, you know, they really did it well. That song keeps coming up a lot. It's like fluid, you know, fluid from Think Pink. Oh yeah. It's an instrumental, and the hip hop crowd, yeah, sample it all the time. Like um, Lars Barkley sampled it for a, a new song called Would Be Killer. Timberland sampled it for a new song called UFO. And uh, Tyler, the creator, has just sampled it for a new song called The Boyfriend. So my music's getting out there. <laughs> Although it's taken 50 years, it's getting out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's go back to do it. Yeah, let's do it. A very interesting time. Go back to uh, I think J- January 1972, and we've got a, a live track by a band that you uh, 
put together, if you want to say that, uh, the last minute put together Boogie Band. And um, this track actually features uh, Sid Barrett on it, which is quite remarkable in itself. Um, It's the track number nine from um, a live recording that was made at the Cambridge Corn Exchange. That's right, yeah, uh, Cambridge Corn Exchange. We were were there supporting uh, Hawkwind and the Pink Fairies. We were the first band on that evening, and Sid, who'd been to a show a couple of days before that we were playing at in King's College Cellars, we were playing a couple of days before. Sid came along and jammed with us, and then he came along to the mm. the Corn Exchange, and you know we invited him up again to uh, to play with us. <clears throat> and yeah, it's it's great great having him there. A couple of days later, uh, we formed Stars together, myself, Jack Monk, and Sid. Just going back to that that live track, is he kind of playing rhythm? Uh, no, he's playing some lead parts, but um, Fred Frith is uh, the main lead player on that. Mm. He was with Henry Cow and uh, all those kind of kind of bands. Um, he's playing some lead parts there, uh, but Sid is playing as well, some lead, noodling along. It was just a just a jam, you know. Yeah, yeah. You you kind of mentioned uh, uh, you know soon after that you formed Stars. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of mythology that that's, that's gone around Sid at that time. But what was he actually just like to be with in that period? Well, you know, he was fun, fun to be with. Um, he was always on time for rehearsals. He was always on time for shows. He was always <clears throat> excited to be playing, happy to be playing. Mind you, I had to keep in, keep an eye on him when uh, my girl my girlfriend was around because. Uh, you know, he was always following her around the house. You know, so I had to follow Sid <laughs> around. You know, <laughs> but no, he, you know, he was he was great. I I, I loved Sid. I think he he was wonderful. It's not that acid casualty that people kind of like to talk about. No, no, that that's that's completely manufactured. You know, by the record companies and uh, the business. It's in my opinion. You know, and in terms of stars, you were you were playing kind of a lot of. Barrett material? Um, mainly Barrett material. We were playing some bluesy stuff and uh, bluesy jams, but um, but mainly Sid stuff, you know, Lucifer Sam, um, Waving My Arms in the Air, Octopus, I think we played. Yeah. It was mainly Sid stuff. But unfortunately, there was the one show that was reviewed or appeared in the in the major, major uh, press at the time was the one show that where everything went wrong, you know. It was reviewed in a bad light. So, uh, yeah. unfortunately, that was the end of Stars because um, yeah. Sid was called into his office in London and I think he was told to leave the band because, you know, nobody's showing any interest in Sid in the business. You know, nobody come to see how he's doing mm. with his new band. Nobody came to the rehearsals. And, but when they saw the review, they said, oh, well, you know, I think you're going to leave this band. And that's what he did. He came back to Cambridge and said, "I don't want to play anymore." And it's, it's such a shame because he was having he was having a great time playing. You know. I've heard that one of the star shows was actually recorded, but is kind of missing. Uh, well, most most of the shows were recorded, but everything is everything has been lost. Mm. And, and I hope one day something will, will show up. The release um, a few years back of the last minute put together boogie band, and the the tracks that. Sid Barrett played on there are, are the last recordings that have been sort of commercially released then of Sid I think so yeah I think so yeah number nine
We talked about Do It earlier, uh, Pink Fairies and, and Punk Rock and, and being a, a precursor to it. Uh, and now we kind of move into that, uh, straight into that, that era, uh, I think 1977, this, and um, yeah. uh, a group that you put together, The Rings and uh, I Want to Be Free. Yeah, actually, uh, I, I, I'm not really that fond of the punk thing. I think it was a pretty mm. rubbishy time, you know, for music. But um, But I was involved in it because I was kind of, rubbishy at the time myself you know it's like taking rubbishy drugs and hmm. um you know mainly uh, you know heroin and, and speed and uh, i got involved in all of that hmm. G- getting back to the music i think it's a great single i think we really did um we did crack it great uh, performances by everyone on the recording you were the front man of that yeah i was a singer for that one hmm. yeah and the b-side too and automobile hmm. yeah we did we did a few live shows around and uh, we supported the dam at the hundred club uh we also supported johnny thunders and the heartbreakers and susie and the banshee uh, so we had quite a bit of exposure but then um and we, and we were booked for the, to play at the uh the mont de punk rock festival in 77 one not the 76 version and that was when the, the rest of the guys in the band decided to leave and form the Maniacs and leave me without a band. Mm. So I couldn't go, you know, they imagined that I couldn't go there. But um, I did, um, I phoned up the promoter. Um, in fact, what I did was I phoned up the rest of the Pink Fairy mm. and, and asked them to reform, you know, the original lineup, you know, Paul Rudolph, Sandy and, and Russell. Asked them to reform and, and, and go to oh. uh, Montemarte with me, which they all agreed to do. And then yeah. a couple of days later, Paul Rudolph called, phoned me back and he said, uh, oh, "Well, I've decided not to, you know, not to go." He said, "I don't, I don't think it'll be good for my career," <laughs> <laughs> which was quite funny, really. But anyway, what happened was we carried on rehearsing with uh, a friend, a guitarist called Chris Chesney. And once we started rehearsing, Rus- Russell then kind of like huh. called, called a little bit of a moody and he mm. said he couldn't play the songs, so he left. So I sat in on drums and I did the vocals and I played drums um, and we went to Monde as a three-piece. Chris Chesney on lead guitar, uh, Sandy on bass, me on drums, and we appeared as the rings. <laughs> with, the, with the approval of the promoter, I might add. And and the maniacs were there too. It was quite extraordinary, really. Hmm. Um, but it all backfired on the hmm. maniacs. They were, they, you know, it didn't uh, it didn't pan out for them. They thought they were going to make a major breakthrough, but it didn't happen.
that by the the early 1980s you kind of took a, a bit of a, a break from the industry i don't think you were re- releasing much in that period anyhow no i was, I was I, i'm kind of like well into my wilderness years when i when i turn now as my wilderness years where i'm kind of like looking and searching but i did start my um my record label in the early 80s yeah producing records um and then i started distributing records that's where the money is mm-hmm and now we're moving to, um, I think, uh, 1990 stroke 91 and a track that you did with um, a very recent guest of mine, Nick Solomon of oh. Beavis Front and um, Jism Analogy from, I think, Odds and Beginnings. Odds and Beginnings, yeah, we, yeah that's right. We, um, we don't really recorded uh, an album together called Magic Eye for his Veronzo label. And um, when I was putting um, Odds and Beginnings together, I asked Nick if he'd, uh, you know, we could do a track together specifically for Odds and Beginnings. And uh, he said, yeah. So uh, I went round to his house and we we set up some drums in his bedroom and he set up his hands in his bedroom and he put a mic up and we recorded it. You know, it was quite, uh, and it really, it sounds great. I love it. But it was very rough and ready, you know, mm. set up and recording, you know, and but it sounds great. So that was fun. It's always fun working with Nick. We we fell out a little bit because, um, unfortunately, uh, I had a manager at the time mm. who was advising me, um, you know, this and that. And, and ultimately, I'm responsible because I let her get on with it. But she really did um, mess up a lot of things for me. But anyway, that's enough of that, you know. Mm. Um, so anyway, m- myself and Nick, um, we fell out a little bit over the album uh, Magic Eye. It's all good. It's all good.
looks the same A white and cloudy It smells like a fish out Soon enough we'll be back there again Now we get um you know much more up to date i think 2015 this time around and you've um reignited the uh, think pink label uh with um and we've mentioned this briefly before but this is from uh, think pink 2 and uh twink and the technical dream and animal man oh, animal man yeah yeah i wrote that um in early yeah, early 2000 somewhere around about that 2000 2001 and i always liked that song and i was very um very happy to record that for think pink 2 is this where you um you linked up with uh, John John Povey? Yeah, John, yeah, John and I um, made contact. How did we do that? Hmm. It, might, it might it might have been through through the Technicolor Dream because um, uh, Marco Conti, who's the main man in, um, in the Technicolor Dream, he's a huge Pretty Things fan. I think he he just um, managed to get John down, and you know he agreed to come to the studio one day, and there he was. It was lovely to see him. Animal man 
For our final track, again, it's uh, Twinken, the uh, technical dream. And I think, again, I think John Povey is involved with this one. It's uh, The Vampire from Clouds Without Water Ooh. from the album Sympathy for the Beast, uh, songs from the poems of Alistair Crowley. That Alistair Crowley, you, you've done a um, few records um, linked to Alistair Crowley. Uh, well, I, I did a, an album with John, Crowley and which me. is called Crowley, Crowley and Me, mm-hmm. yeah. And that was, um, we recorded that, I think, a couple of years ago. It came out last year. On Mega Dodo. Yeah, it was great seeing John and working with John on that record, and I really think uh, he he did an amazing job putting it together. You know, he wrote all most of the material, if not all of the material. Sounds great. Mm. Sympathy for the Beast that got a, a record store day release. That is true to the to the works of Alistair Crowley. The we we on that this album we used <laughs> Alistair's lyrics. We we wrote the music to the yeah, you know, and it sounds pretty good. Uh, in fact, I love it. I love this um, this album, I, and I love Crowley and Me as well. But they're completely, I call them their brother brother and sister albums, you know. Mm. Uh, but for me, Sympathy for the Beast is what we were originally aiming at when the idea first hit hit the table, you know. Um, when we finished um, Think Think Two, I remember sitting around and saying, "Well, you know, what are we going to do now, guys? They, let's do the, um, you know." The Crowley project that we already talked about, called some of his songs, putting his songs, uh, his poems to music. John's ears pricked up, and he he went off running with with the idea. Hmm. The album also contains uh, two songs which have never, which only surfaced a couple of years ago, that Crowley wrote with a, a chap called Bernard Page, um, and they were discovered in the library, I think, in New Zealand hmm. two years ago. And on the album, we've recorded a rock version of the two songs. Plus, we got a classical pianist in um, and, a, and a vocalist, a soprano vocalist, to sing them how they were written, how they were meant to, to be performed, you know, in, in Crowley's day. So it's quite interesting to have those works 
available. That's great because um, I did speak to John at the time of the release of Crowley and Me and he was on the podcast. So it's great this time to, to play uh, the vampire from uh, the uh, Sympathy for the Beast album. Yeah, it's great. But we're, we're at the end and uh, thank you so much for your time, Twink. Uh, what, what can I say in terms of the legacy that you've, uh, or impression that you've made on the industry, people that you've worked with and, and the recorded music that you've left and are still making with, um, you know, your future releases, including the next uh, Think Pink album. Yeah, Think Pink 4 is coming out in June. Brilliant. Well, uh, keep in touch. <laughs> okay, that's wonderful. Thank you very much, and thank you for your interest. All right, take care. Thank you very much. All right, bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been almost 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.